This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. In today's world, we sometimes have great flights of fancy on what we would do and how we would live if we only had the good fortune to come into an unexpected treasure trove of riches. And if this seems like an over-exaggeration, the next time you fill your car with gas, go inside to pay, and you will undoubtedly see sitting prominently in front of the cashier a reminder to buy your lottery ticket where you might, and maybe the word might would be an exaggeration, but it's probably true, you just might win millions of dollars. So dutifully, just in case we plunk down our money on the odds that we may be the big winner. And in truth, we probably have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than winning, although the winning would be a far more desirable situation. But in truth, probably the greater value of all this possible wealth is in the imagination of what we would do if the big if, if we would be the winner. How would we live our lives? Would it be carefree where money was no object, whatever we want? Well, our imagination takes flight from reality. And then there's travel. Oh, but if we fly, we would naturally only consider flying first class. And if we took the train, Well, then we would travel in our own railroad car with people waiting on us and on our every whim. Then, when we would see the multitudes of the less fortunate than we, how would we react? Would we be generous with our riches? Would we share? Better still, would we take all the dollars from all our winnings and just give it all away? Well, maybe we best not answer that question. However, our story for today has a bit of those ironies in it. Oh, no, there was no lottery winner involved because our person involved never bought a lottery ticket. She was born with that kind of riches. When she traveled with her family, they did indeed travel by a private railroad car. And if there were planes in her day, well, her family would have always flown only in the first-class seating section. That's the way we picture the rich and famous, particularly in today's world where the magic of materialism creates all sorts of headlines for those with unlimited finances. Just pick up the tabloids and you'll see what I mean. But this family was not the family making the supermarket checkout news. The successful father, the head of the household, would come home from work, visit with the family, have dinner, and then spend a half an hour in prayer. Now the mother would recognize their blessings and how fortunate they were So she would open up their home about three days every week to the poor and disadvantaged, where they would be welcomed and where she would quietly be of assistance to help and comfort them. And this was done quietly without fanfare. When you see how your parents live and the generosity and kindness they show to the less fortunate, well, that can't help but make an impression on the children. 
As Professor Joseph Brown at Princeton University once said, and I will never forget his statement, and I quote it frequently because it bears repeating. He said, little boys play the way men live, and little girls play the way women live. And so it was with the family in our story. Their children and their daughter, Kate, well, she lived her life helping the poor and spent literally millions of dollars making their lives more bearable. And that's a lot of money, particularly if you were born in 1858 in the prestigious city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But I'm getting ahead of my story. Kate was born to wealth. Her father, Francis Drexel, was an international banker, and obviously they were among what we might consider the very wealthy. The very, very wealthy. But wealth does not always buy health, and Kate's mother died from complications in delivering a child when Kate was just three years old. Two years later, her father remarried a lovely woman named Emma, who cared for the children with the same love and devotion as though they were hers, and also paying the same close attention to the children's religious training. So Kate and her two sisters, Elizabeth and Louise, enjoyed a happy childhood, and the relationship between the girls was very close and lasting. The father was creative and worked hard, resulting in even more wealth for the family as they moved into a bigger and finer family home. But still, even with their increased wealth, Francis and Emma continued to set a wonderful example by making a point of always helping the needy in any manner they could. Mr. Drexel's usual comments were, God wants us always to use our money to help others. As an example, in 1870, Mr. Drexel bought a 90-acre farm with a lovely house which he remodeled. The pasture was cultivated and the remaining acreage was planted with trees, shrubs, and flowers to make it more attractive to everyone. Each of the girls had a particular assignment as part of their everyday chores. Kate, who was just now 12 or 13, had as her chore the job of overseeing the household, and not long after moving in, Kate was also given the task of providing a Sunday school for the children of the employees at the farm, which was named after St. Michael, under whose protection the farm was placed. Kate's father lived his life as an example. God and his saints were never far away. Years later, Katie would write of her youth. Prayer was like breathing. There was no compulsion, no obligation. It was natural to pray. Night prayers were always said together. Papa and Mama would come up and we would kneel together for our night's prayers. A pretty good example for the family. Well, time passed. In their mid-teens, the family even went abroad and toured much of Europe for six whole months in 1874. In 1878, Kate finished her formal education. 
She and her sister continued their close relationship and traveled to the seashore for frequent outings. But the following year, their stepmother's health began to fail, and Kate and Elizabeth spent a great deal of time caring for her until her death in February of 1883. Well, obviously, the entire family was shattered by her passing. Papa Drexel felt that it would be good for everyone to have a change of scenery and took the girls again to Europe. Kate was now 25 and was concerned as to the direction her future life was to take. She somehow felt that God was calling her to do his bidding, but she was uncertain as to the path she was being called to follow. One of the destinations in Europe was Venice, where they went to St. Mark's Church. And while in the church, she was captivated by a very old but, but very beautiful painting of Our Lady. And Kate knelt to offer a prayer in front of the picture, and as she did, something very strange happened. She had the feeling that the Blessed Mother was speaking to her. Oh, not audibly, but the message seemed clear in her mind and, and very powerful, and it was, freely give to others what you have received. Well, they went on, and in Rome they, they met a Father Hylobus, who ministered to Native Americans back in the United States. He told Kate in great detail about the problems and sufferings they faced, and this had a great impact on Kate. She often thought about Father Heidelbus's words. The problems lodged themselves in the back recesses of her mind, but back home Elizabeth picked up where her stepmother had left off in caring for the poor and those in need. However, Kate, witnessing the goodness of both her mother and stepmother, well, she started to wonder whether she was being called to give up the luxury in which she lived in exchange for the poverty of religious life, even to the point of turning down proposals of marriage by some of the eligible bachelors of Philadelphia. She communicated at length with the family friend, Bishop O'Connor, telling him of her nagging desire to enter a religious order, but he recommended quite strongly that she hold off any such action for the time being, perhaps because of the great wealth to which the family had been accustomed and the difference and change that would be in her life. Well, to help ease the grief and loss of wife and stepmother, Papa Drexel took the girls again to Europe, attempting to find in motion what was lost in space. On returning home, Kate again wrote Bishop O'Connor that she found no rewarding happiness in the secular world, and I quote, she wrote, there is a void in my heart that only God can fill. Mr. Drexel and a business associate journeyed to the Pacific Northwest as guests of the Northern Pacific Railroad as the result of a joint business adventure, and he was able to take the girls and several friends along. In Tacoma, Washington, they attended Mass and discovered that the pastor was the priest they had met in Rome, Father Hylobus. 
Naturally, they got together, and the priest spoke of his work operating small missions for the Native Americans and the problems and needs that they faced. After just a brief glimpse of the problems, Kate was so moved she donated $100 of her $200 a month allowance to buy a statue of the Virgin Mary for one of the mission chapels. Her thoughts now focused on the plight of the Native Americans and how many of their needs were being ignored and how they as human beings were being treated. Well, the following year in 1885, Papa Drexel died following a short illness. His estate was valued at more than $12.5 million, which is worth many, many more times than that in today's money. More than 29 charities received a great deal of money with the remainder placed in trust for his daughters. Elizabeth Drexel founded a training school for orphaned boys, and naturally Kate and Louise also spent a great deal of time helping this project, which was named the St. Francis Industrial School. Cause of all the turmoil, the death of her father, and concern for the life she should live, Kate's own health began to deteriorate to the point where her two sisters thought she would benefit from another trip to Europe. So off they went and visited spas and health centers for Kate and even spent five weeks at one location for her treatment. And during this time, she received a number of letters from Father Hylobus telling even more of the problems faced by the Native Americans and this distressed Kate even more. Seems they were now being plagued by a severe drought back in the States, and, and many were starving because they couldn't grow crops, and to make matters even worse, those who had been converted to the faith were becoming discouraged. She was told that they needed help, and they needed more missionaries. She had discussed this with Bishop O'Connor before they had left on their trip, and he suggested that perhaps she could find some priests in Europe who would be willing to come as missionaries, but none appeared available. The girls went on to visit Rome, where they were invited to attend a private mass by Pope Leo XIII, as well as an invitation for a private audience with the Holy Father following the mass. Kate would describe their meeting with the Pope when she wrote in her journal, and I quote, Kneeling at his feet, my girlish fancy thought surely that God's vicar would not refuse me. So I pleaded for missionary priests for the Indians. To my astonishment, His Holiness responded, Why not, my child, yourself becoming a missionary? End of quotes. But she was perplexed. The enormity of the pontiff's suggestion, well, it didn't fully sink in. She undoubtedly thought of it merely as a rhetorical suggestion. But the seed was now planted by the master gardener. Back home, Louise, Elizabeth, and Kate were invited and encouraged to come and see for themselves the enormity of the problems facing the Native Americans and how destitute their lives had become. 
and they went. They left Philadelphia on September 19, 1887, and visited a number of missions, including the missions financed by Kate with money from her father. Returning home, she financed the organization of more missionary schools. And not long after returning home, I believe Providence and Pope Leo's suggestion was a seed that finally took root. She felt that God was calling her to be a religious, and she must obey God's wishes, and wrote her a friend, Bishop O'Connor, with her decision and her own interpretation of God's plan for her life. Well, the bishop finally agreed that she had a true calling and asked what order she was considering. Her response was to serve those in need whom she loved. She wrote the bishop, and I quote, I want a missionary order for Indians and colored people. The question of the day for Kate was now not should she enter the religious life, but what order should she enter? She was filled with concern for her brothers and sisters who were either Native Americans or black Americans. And her friend Bishop O'Connor suggested she use her inheritance to found a bureau to target the needs of those specific groups. He even went so far as to lay out an organizational chart. Kate amplified the concept with having a bishop or bishops who would in some way visit the areas in sort of a position of an overseer. Well, while Kate was considering her options, Bishop O'Connor became convinced that, that God had called her to establish such an order for the objectives she so often mentioned. He said, All the help the established order can give in this work will be needed, but a strong order devoted to it exclusively is also needed. Added, you have the means to make such an establishment. God has put in your heart a great love for these people. Well, Kate was surprised at his suggestion, but not overly excited. She was happy with his interest, but felt that her own calling was was for a more contemplative life. Plus, she felt strongly that this order required a type of charismatic leader and was certain that she did not have the personality to provide the direction this new order would require. However, the bishop was adamant. He argued, even as a foundress, You will have your faults, but God, not you, will do the work. He often makes use of very weak instruments. The question is not, will you be all that you should be, but does God will that you be his instrument? Other bishops with whom Bishop O'Connor discussed the concept were likewise enthusiastic, yet Kate clung to her desire to follow a life of poverty and contemplation, giving her inheritance to the support of Indian and black people of need. Nonetheless, a short time later, all of Philadelphia and the country, in fact, were startled to read about an heiress giving up a life of luxury to become a nun and live in poverty. She was no longer Kate, 
but now Sister Mary Catherine. And she loved the life of a nun and made many friends with her delightful sense of humor. She would write Bishop O'Connor that though she loved the life she was leading, apparently the seeds of his suggestion were being considered. Not too much later, her friend Bishop O'Connor died, but the new bishop providentially took over his concern for Kate's future after she received her habit. Further sorrow awaited Kate with the death of her sister Elizabeth in 1890. Then there was more bad news as she was preparing for her vows. After a continued mistreatment by the government, as well as a dreadful drought that lasted a year, bringing near starvation to the Lakota Indians, violence erupted. And as a result of the frustration and of the situation that they faced, the the Indians burned many buildings, even those close to the mission. Well, the the government retaliated with an attack that killed over 200 Lakota men, women, and children at a place that would be unhappily etched forever in history, a place known as Wounded Knee. As Kate was to take her final vows, Bishop O'Connor's charge to Kate was to become a reality. Yes, she would use all the resources at her command. A design for the habit was completed. The Franciscan rope cincture would be added because of her great devotion to St. Francis. And on the 12th of February in 1891, she made her first profession and received the black veil from the new bishop with the usual vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But also added to the vows were to be the mother and servant of the Indian and Negro races, according to the rule of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. The bishop then added, he added the words for the Indians and the colored race to their official name. Sister Catherine's next task was to try and recruit other young women and sisters who would share both her dream and her labors. She was concerned where to look, but trusted in God to provide, and provide he did. Thirteen young women joined her order, and soon she and her sisters traveled westward to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where she built a school for Pueblo Indian children. She felt they needed a strong learning environment and arranged for them to live right there at the school. Again, they were faced with the problems of a severe drought, and to her there was only one place to go for help. She prayed, Jesus, we need water. And a short time later, the rains came. She and her sisters had so much to do that they could not waste time. More schools were started for the Native American children. Providence had provided the funds through her inheritance, which she used to further the work of her order. Sister Catherine and her sisters would travel great distances by what we would consider today very primitive means to reach other Indian nations that needed help. They went on foot, by horseback, or by wagons. They taught the Indians English so they could find work. 
They taught them sanitation, which would help reduce so many diseases that they that kept them from leading productive lives and that would help them to lead more healthful lives. And during all the times they were working with the Native Americans, they were also helping sow the seeds of their plans, their dreams, and hopes for their brothers and sisters to achieve their rightful God-given place in society. Soon came a school for African-American boys, followed by a school for African-American girls. While their order was approved by the local bishop, official approval had not been received from Rome, which was a great concern for Sister Catherine. But even so, even that did not deter her conviction to keep moving forward. And another sister who was starting an order visited Sister Catherine, and since they shared so many of the same convictions and dreams for the future, they developed an instant and lifelong friendship, since they both shared a common dream to help the less fortunate. Her name was Mother Cabrini. She told Sister Catherine that she must travel to Rome and show them her rule and what they were doing. Well, she did, as Mother Cabrini suggested, and her order was approved. And more schools were started, some as far away as New Orleans, and she worked tirelessly on and on. Perhaps her most crowning achievement was the founding of Xavier University in New Orleans for the first Catholic university in America for blacks. She knew the mission God had given her, and she would not let him down. Well, the years passed, and what Sister Catherine and the seeds that she and her order sowed produced beautiful flowers. From the age of 33 until her death in 1955 at the age of 96, the young woman who had inherited a fortune and could have lived a life of ease and luxury instead chose to serve God in poverty and love. By 1942, she had a system of black Catholic schools in 13 states, plus 40 mission centers and 23 rural schools. At her death, there were more than 500 sisters teaching in 63 schools throughout the country. And because of her lifelong dedication to her faith and selfless service to those oppressed and in need, little Kate from Philadelphia was beatified by Pope John Paul II on November 20th, 1988, and given the title of Blessed, One Miracle from Sainthood. And perhaps the author Mary Van Balen Hope, who wrote the book Meet Catherine Drexel, summed it up best when she said, Here was a woman who intimately knew both the streets of Paris and the streets of Harlem, who crossed the ocean on luxury liners yet paddled the backwaters of the Louisiana Bayou, who dined with equal ease in the mansions of high society or the tent of a Lakota tribal chief. Catherine's life was the adventure of an indomitable soul who gave herself to the oppressed and taught the world the meaning of fearless love. 
Oh, but there's more to the story of little Kate from Philadelphia. In 1933, a child named Amy Wall had been born deaf, and the prognosis would be that she would never hear. Years later, Amy's family was watching television after the death of Catherine, and a program featured a story on the life of Blessed Catherine. Amy's parents were so moved by by what this one woman had accomplished, they prayed that Blessed Catherine would intercede for them in heaven and ask God to grant a miracle that Amy would hear. Well, we sometimes forget the power of prayer and the intercession of God's saints. And shortly after their prayer, Amy heard for the first time. On October 1st in the year 2000, Pope John Paul the Great elevated Sister Mary Catherine to that very special group the children of God, and would henceforth be known as St. Catherine Drexel, who gave away everything she had for an eternity in heaven. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.